Welcome to Calvary Chapel Elizabeth City's online sermon series. Join us this week for 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, with Pastor John King. Morning, everybody. Morning. Uh, yeah, let's, let's keep Miss Linda in our prayers. I think uh, they're going to be, uh, just as a precaution, I think they're going to be bringing her to the hospital, so there'll be uh, an ambulance coming. Uh, so just keep her in your prayers. I think everything's going to be okay. But uh, in any event, uh, let's turn to the Word of God this morning. First Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Um, you guys know last week, if you've been following along with us, we, uh, we began a new topic with a question. What happens to a Christian after they die and they're laid to rest? Uh, and the reason for that question is because the Thessalonian church was very concerned about um, what happens, you know, when, when people pass away. Uh, are they going to miss out on Jesus' second coming? This was the confusion that the church had. And so Paul was seeking to comfort them. And he wanted to ensure them that um, they're not going to miss out. There's no way. Um, and then he went on and he laid some groundwork. Uh, before he explained, he basically covered the events of the rapture last week, if you follow along in that. First, he reminded them of his concern over the fact that they were uninformed about the death of a Christian. Because this can really, uh, you know, sit you off. I mean, it can really kind of give you this a lack of hope. You could start drifting off into a, into a serious condition spiritually. And so he challenged their belief on the basis of Jesus' actual resurrection. And he pointed to the comfort that you and I have as Christians because God has promised, and God doesn't change His promises, but God has promised to raise our bodies from death and decay to be joined with our souls for all of eternity. He then informed them that the answer to their concerns was actually coming from God himself. He wanted to make sure, and we need to make sure, look, this isn't something that, God, that Paul made up. This is a, the word of God is not some fairy tale, as we said. This was God's word to Paul, revelation to Paul, to share with the churches. And so what followed was Paul's revealing of the mystery known to us as the rapture, the, rap, the uh, harpazo. Harpazo is the Greek word for being caught up, and rapture is... Uh, comes from the Latin word, rapturo. So we covered all this last week. Let's bow our heads and pray. Lord, we, uh, we see somebody that wanted to be here today, a precious couple, Larry and Linda. Uh, they wanted to be here despite the um, difficulty that it is for them to be here. And we thank you, Lord, that they have honored us with their presence. And they honor you as well. And so, Lord, we pray. We don't know what the day is going to hold for them, but we ask, Lord, that they would be comforted and rested and well taken care of. And we're thankful for our EMTs, our local rescue squad, and we're thankful for everyone here, uh, friends that take care of them, those who will help them get home eventually today. We thank you, Lord, for your goodness and your kindness. And we pray this, we, we ask for a special blessing to be on this family. We pray this now in Jesus' name. 
Amen. Amen. So today um, we're going to talk about, you, most of your Bibles have a, a kind of a, a title to chapter 5 known as the Day of the Lord. The Day of the Lord. Today we're going to look at another aspect of Jesus' second coming. And we're going to look and see how it's going to impact the world and those who uh, are left behind. Once the church has been made safe in his arms, the day of the Lord will be made manifest. Uh, we talked about the rapture last week. And this will begin a seven-year tribulation, during which time the Lord will have removed the restraining power of the Holy Spirit. He will allow for the Antichrist to rise to power. This uh, son of perdition will deceive the nations. He will deceive Israel and all the nations for three and a half years. And then we read in Matthew 24, verse 21. It says, for then, this is from Jesus, for then there will be a great tribulation, such as not been seen since the beginning of the world until this time, nor, no, nor ever shall be. During which... This time is, is known as the tribulation during which the wrath of God will be unleashed on the world as punishment through a series of judgments. All of this is recorded for us in the book of Revelation, chapters 6 through 19. Now so far, Paul has been comforting the church about Christ's return. You know, we sang that song, like a bride. And like a bride eagerly awaiting her bridegroom who could come at any moment. But this is not an empty hope. and In fact, it is imminent. It's not if, but when the Lord shall return. And the question for today, the question was last week, what happens to those who die in Christ before Jesus' second coming? Paul answered that. But the question for us today is, what about those who reject or push away the idea and the truth of Jesus' return. You know, there's going to come a time in this world where everyone has heard the gospel and everybody's going to have a chance to make a decision for Christ. But there are going to be some who will not. And so what happens? What about those? And so this, this part of this verse is that it deals with those who are unaware, being caught off guard, and those who should be aware, and that's the church. But we'll see that those uh, who reject Christ will be caught off guard. They'll be ignorant and unaware that they are about to be overtaken by the Lord's return, just like a thief in the night. And so the question is, is again, we have another question for ourselves. What, we're going to talk about what happens to those who are left behind a little bit. But really, the bigger question is, how are you and I? living our lives today? How do we conduct ourselves as to the Lord? You know, it's not about impressing one another with our good behavior or virtue signaling or any of that. How are we conducting ourselves? What's our attitude about Jesus's return? Do we look to, you know, with great expectation? We sing of Christmas. We have our Christmas, uh, you know, uh, season upon us right now. We're going to have a Christmas service and that great expectation that many had for Christ to come. Do we have the same expectation for Jesus' return? Are we waiting with patience? Are we watchful? Are we sober? Are we being faithful? And are we lovingly comforting one another and edifying one another? 
instead of, you know, perhaps what the church does with eschatology is it tends to argue about it. So our passage today, verses 1 through 11 of chapter 5, goes like this. It says, But concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them, as labor pains upon a pregnant woman. And they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet of hope of salvation, the helmet of hope of salvation. For God did not appoint us to wrath. That's a very important thing to remember. God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation to our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whatever we wake, or whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Therefore, comfort each other and edify one another, just as you also are doing. And so, Lord, we uh, come before you with uh, another uh, look at your word and and the important aspects of of what we are um, being called to do, the things that you're asking us to do today. You're giving us direction, Lord, and how we should live our lives. And you're giving us information, Lord, that should also encourage our hearts to uh, want to tell others about you. And so, Lord, we ask that you would just simply go before this message this morning. We pray this all in Jesus' precious name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Well, first of all, uh, when we look at the day of the Lord, uh, we're going to learn a few things. One is that it is certain, but the timing, the actual when is it going to happen, is not certain. It cannot be specifically dated, but it is sure to come. And it has certain characteristics for both believers and unbelievers. So you cannot mark your calendar as to when this uh, event, the coming day of the Lord, is going to take place. And so Paul begins and he says, but concerning the times and the seasons, brethren. So, you know, he's he's got a, a slight shift within the same topic that we had last week but from a different aspect. The times and the seasons. Now it's been pointed out that this phrase, times and seasons, is only found three times in the Bible. And it does refer primarily to God's plans for Israel. Uh, I don't have a slide, but Daniel 2.21 says, and we remember when when we went through the book of Daniel, it says, and he changes times and the seasons. He removes kings and raises up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. We need to keep that in mind in our days and times right now. Not, Not only the fact that he removes kings and raises up kings, but he also gives wisdom to the wise. And we need it more than ever. In Acts 1 6, uh, Jesus had gathered with the 120 believers in, in uh, Jerusalem just before his ascension to heaven. And it says here, Acts 1 6 and Acts 1 7, actually, it says, you see it there, 
He says, therefore, when they had come together, this is verse 6, he said, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? You know, they still hadn't, they still didn't have a good understanding about what the future held. And in verse 7, as you see, it says, and then he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. And that still is binding upon us now. Even though we see things unfold, we see some remarkable things taking place in our lifetimes. Uh, we've seen in the last you know, 100 years, the nation Israel is actually a sovereign nation. And we know all of what's going on right now. And it's, it seems like our, my whole life and, and yours as well, uh, the center of news information is typically right there in the Middle East, centered right around a small you know, country the size of New Jersey. But we still don't know. We cannot be date setters. We never want to fall in the trap of doing that. Many people have tried to do that. That hurts the credibility of our message, for one. And it's wrong. It's wrong. But we are to be ready because we know that it could happen at any time. The word times is that chronos, where we get you know, chronology. In a broad sense, it expresses the duration of a period of time. You know, set your stopwatch, if you will. But it also um, sometimes gives the order of events when it's used biblically. And we saw this last week, the detail of the rapture. You know, the dead in Christ will rise first, and then we who are alive will be, remain will be called up. So there's an order. So the times, and then you have the seasons, that word kairos, and it's what the times bring. It's, it's the details, the state of the times, the things and the events in the times, the things that fills the newspaper and the internet and the news, you know, each and every day, the seasons, the nature of events within times. Uh, a, a perfect example is, is just a, a chronological year has four seasons, right? We're, in the, we're coming into winter from spring and summer, fall, and then winter. And it also refers to special features of that period. And so a lot of times when we read about what's going to happen in the future, we, we get to hear, you know, some interesting details. But it's been pointed out that God has ordained times and seasons for the nations on earth, particularly Israel. And all of this will culminate in a terrible time called the day of the Lord. And, but, he, but Paul, he kind of says, you know, concerning the times and seasons, he says, you have no need that I should write you. He's like, I'm not really here. I'm not writing this to inform you because why? You know, why, do they, why don't they really need to know? And the reason is because he's already covered most of what's going to happen. He's already sat and he's explained things with them. He's taught them, as we said last week, he's gone to the real meat of the word, the real truth about God's coming and, and you know, every, everything about the end times and the promise of the second coming. And so he says, it is sure to come. And it will come unexpectedly for some. So verse 2, it says, for you yourselves know perfectly. Again, he's, he's reiterating the fact that they know very you know, dig, dil, uh, diligently, very accurately, that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. Um, this is where the apostle is warning the church not to be deceived because things need to happen. They haven't, they, you know, one of the things they struggled with is, have we, is the day of the Lord presently among us? Is his return? Is it happening right now? 
I mean, you see a lot of chaos in the world, and they saw it as well. And he's like, no, there's some things that need to be, take place. First of all, it needs to be very unexpected to people. It's so it comes as a thief in the night. Um, I like what Chuck Swindoll writes about this. He says, over the years, I've heard frightening and heartbreaking stories of people who have experienced break-ins by thieves in the night. And not one of them involves the perpetrator announcing his forced entry and a blaring alarm with a loud shout. He's trying to, what Chuck Smith, or what Chuck Swindoll is saying, look, uh, this is not the same as the rapture. This coming of the Lord, this day of the Lord, is actually to bring judgment, not to call the church out. He says the key difference is not so much when, but to the whom of the events. The, the rapture is only for the church. True believers in Christ who are waiting for the Son from heaven, they are to be ready, waiting, looking up in hope. So when Christ descends from heaven to rescue his church, it will be a glorious day of joy and salvation. However, this event will kick off the dreadful wrath, judgments, plagues, and catastrophes known as the day of the Lord which will culminate in the second coming of Christ as judge and king and the battle of Armageddon, which happens at the end of the seven-year tribulation. We've said it many times, but man can't govern himself. You know, you've got all the different systems. You've got the socialism and communism and democratic republics, all these different systems. You have ultimate monarchies. You have dictatorships. And history has shown us that they don't work for people over the long run. Even our own system is crumbling as we speak. Man cannot govern himself, so Christ is going to come back. And so the day of the Lord is when the Lord says, I'm done giving man the chance to try and run this world on his own. The message of salvation will have gone out to everyone. And he said, now it's time for judgment. And that's the thing we, you know, sometimes get a little bit upset about. When you read these next passages, you're going to notice that they're, they're going to, you're going to have to take note of what Paul's saying, the type of pronouns that he uses. He says you and we in contrast to they, others, and those. Uh, you thought I was going to say something else about pronouns probably, but I'm not, not going to do that. But notice it in the text as we go through it. Look at verse 3. He says, For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them. It's similar to what Jesus was saying in Matthew 24 in the days of Noah. He says, But in the days of Noah were, so will also be the coming of the Son of Man. And as, For as in the days before the flood they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage, until that day Noah entered the ark. And they did not know until the flood came and took them all away. And so also will the coming of man be. There's going to be a lot of people that just aren't, you know, they're not, they're like, oh, all of a sudden they'll have, as we see in our text, sudden destruction will come upon them. You know, when you read Revelation, there's some chilling verses in there, of course, especially when you go. Revelation 9, 6, this is how bad it's going to be, this sudden destruction. It says, in those days men will seek death and will not find it. Imagine not being able to even take your own life. But they will desire to die, and death will flee from them during that period of time. So they're going to go through it. 
And he, he gives another analogy. He says here, as labor pains upon a pregnant woman. Now this is uh, uh, birth pangs, which would be uh, considered equivalent to intolerable anguish. Childbirth in the ancient world had a significantly higher risk of both mother and child mortality. And they didn't have the painkillers to help them through. And it was a very painful experience. It was part of the curse. And it's not much better today. I can only see, say by observation, obviously, not by experience. But the early part of this day of the Lord was called the beginning of sorrows by Jesus himself in Matthew 24, 8. And the Greek word translated sorrows actually means birth pangs. But notice for unbelievers, it will be a day of inescapable destruction. Inescapable destruction. You won't be able to flee away. John Walvoord wrote this. He said, The day of the Lord is a period of time in which God will deal with wicked men directly and dramatically in fearful judgment. Today a man may be a blasphemer of God, an atheist. He can denounce God and teach bad doctrine. And seemingly God does nothing about it. But the day designated in Scripture as the day of the Lord is coming when God will punish human sin and he will deal in wrath and in judgment with a Christ-rejecting world. One thing we are sure of, that God in his own way will bring every soul into judgment. Nobody's going to be able to stand at the back, you know, the back of the line or the back, you know, kind of hide out of the, the view of God. Now last week, of course, we, I've said it several times, we, we've covered the details of the rapture. Verses 16 through 17, if you look back real quick, it says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout and with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds and meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. And we need to be, as, as, as Israel has been in the spotlight, has been you know, in the forefront of many people's minds these days, especially. Uh, we need to pay attention to what this transition is going to entail, what this final move uh, in the world is going to have happen before the judgment of Christ. Uh, Barry Stagner, pastor, he wrote, this is an important talking about the rapture because the rapture clearly identifies a necessary transition in God's redemptive plan to the nation Israel. We know now as we study, those of us have really kind of honed in a little bit more on Israel and the people of Israel, and they're going through this terrible time. But you find that many of them are not believers. In fact, most of them, the overwhelming majority, is a secular nation. Although reports are coming back, and a lot of them are surrendering. They're actually going to Judaism. Those that were kind of secular, they're actually going back to the roots of their religious heritage. And that's sort of like a stepping stone, many people would hope we should, that they would receive Christ eventually. But this necessary transition of God's redemptive plan, Jesus said that the gates of Hades would not prevail against his church, that's in Matthew 16 and 18, which tells us that the church would continue down through the ages in spite of the devil's attempts to destroy it. But the rapture marks the transition point from the church age back to the weeks that God told Daniel were determined for his people and for the holy city. 
The pause in the fulfillment of Daniel's 70 weeks of years indicates that the time between the 69th and 70th weeks is distinct from them. And that something will set the fulfillment of those weeks in motion again. And that something is the rapture of the church. So it's good just to kind of keep that in mind of what's going to happen. But the question for today was what happens to those that are left behind? Will there be a hope of salvation for those who are having to go through the great tribulation? The tribulation and the great tribulation. And Romans eleven twenty six says that eventually, you know, all of Israel, there'll be a collective group of those that are still in the nation Israel, a collective group of them who will come as a nation and come back to the Lord. And there will also be a great multitude of believers saved during the great tribulation. You just don't want to go through it. It's probably going to cost you your life. Revelation seven fourteen it says, but these Jewish and Gentile tribulation saints, uh, excuse me, he goes on to say, uh, the great tribulation. But, and he says, these Jew, Jewish and Gentile tribulation saints saved during the period of wrath on this earth are distinct from the church. And uh, they're raptured from the earth, completely spared from that period of wrath. And why am I, why am I saying this so often and so frequently? Well, the reason is, is because you have a belief out there that's very prominent in some parts of the church. Uh, fellow believers who hold different views on the end times, and they have what's called replacement theology. And that's where they believe that the church has actually replaced Israel. And all the things that are said about Israel now has come upon the church. And so that replacement theology, uh, I totally disagree with it. And I find it to be very, diff- you know, very dangerous, to be quite honest with you. Uh, because what's happening now is you see the pushback, uh, people wanting to pull away from Israel and not support them around the world because of what's going on. And a lot of people, that Christians that are saying that, hold this view. Well, that, you know, Israel doesn't matter anymore. They're, they're not relevant anymore. And so, you know, the church has replaced them. And so there's, there's a, a lot of stuff going on that we, of course, have no idea the full ramifications of it, but what's happening. But there's a lot of pushback. And so we need to continue to pray for Israel because they're trying to finish the job they started. And there's so much pressure being put upon them. Now, uh, unfortunately, some of the hostages actually got shot. And there's so much pressure being put upon them to stop. And they really do need to finish what they're doing. They need to wipe out this, uh, this group. But what we're seeing here as we, as we move forward now into verses 4 through 8. I apologize for the delay. I hope I didn't get you off track too much. Um, we're, we're seeing here uh, the comfort of believers concerning the day of the Lord. You know, it's been said that Jesus Christ both unites and divides. And those who have trusted him as Savior are united in Christ as God's children. We're members of his body and we're all going to be, you know, one in Christ. We say that often. But when Jesus Christ returns in the air, we shall be caught up together, never to be separated again. But Christ is also a divider. There was a division among the people because of him. You read that in John chapter 7, verses 9, uh, chapter 9, verses 16, chapter 10, verse 19. Faith in Jesus Christ not only unites us with other believers, but it also separates us spiritually from the rest of the world. And so that's something we, you know, are looking at right now. There's going to be a comparison. Them and us, you know, us and them, us and them. 
But the purpose was to encourage believers to live holy lives in the midst of the surroundings they were found themselves in. And so he did this by pointing to the contrast between believers and unbelievers. So in verse 4, he says, But you, brethren, are not in darkness. This moral and spiritual darkness. In fact, it's wise for us to remember how we once were, if you came to know the Lord later in life, and and where you were when when the Lord found you and, and called you to himself. Colossians 1.13, it says, He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us, brought us into the kingdom of the Son of His love. And so he says, You are not in darkness, so that this day, the day of the Lord, should overtake you as a thief to seize or to take possession of. And then he goes on in verse 5, he says, You are all sons of light and sons of the day. Sons of the day, really talking about somebody who now has changed their life. They've become a Christian and they no longer uh, indulge in vice and crime and drunkenness and drugs and whatever. Uh, Because acts of that sort are usually perpetrated at night and in the darkness. Now, if you're a parent or a grandparent of teenagers, you know that no good thing happens after about 11, 12 o'clock at night. No good thing happens. He says, but we are not of the night, nor of darkness. So we're to stay spiritually alert and look for the salvation of the Lord. And so he says in verse 6, therefore, let us not sleep as others do. Again, he uses a lot of metaphors to yield to, you know, sloth and sin, to be indifferent about your salvation, you know, sort of ho-hum about everything concerning you and your life with the Lord. To be spiritually ignorant, he's saying, don't do that. Don't, don't, don't allow the times to let you get caught up in that. And he says, but let us watch and be sober. Uh, the watch, that word Gregorio, is to give strict attention, to be cautious, in order to prevent falling into sin. This is talking about spiritual alertness. And he also throws in the, the fact, he says, and be sober. So spiritual alertness and moral alertness. And he's really talking about avoiding intoxicants. How do you know he's talking about intoxicants? Well, look at verse 7. He says, for those who sleep, sleep at night. This is the normal use of sleep. Hopefully you got a good night's rest last night. Some of us did. Some of us didn't. He says, but those who get drunk are drunk at night. So he's referring to the use of alcohol to get drunk. Um, and then he, he's kind of, you know, one, one writer put it this way. If they aren't spiritually ignorant, they're morally corrupt. They indulge in the lust of the flesh and of the mind. This was once a part of my life. Uh, and part of my life consisted of drinking binges. In fact, there were times when I was passed out. I was unaware of my surroundings. The thing that got to me was not so much the immediate after effects, which could have been pretty terrible, but they would subside. But the thing that got to me was not knowing what I had said and done. That's what lingered on my mind. And even though by the time that I had come to know the Lord, my my wild living, thank the Lord, was in the past, 
One of the things, and this is, this is my testimony, one of the things the Lord delivered me from right away, instantly, was a taste for alcohol. And I, and I don't want to say that to, so you guys think, oh, you know, aren't you holy, Mr. Holy Roller? No, the Lord took that desire away from me immediately. And, you know, other things he's had to work in me. So maybe you know how, how it is to come to the Lord, especially from a life uh, of, you know, a lot of sin in your life, in your past. And some things the Lord gives you instant deliverance from, and other things he's continually working on. But I remember sharing with someone that now that I'm a Christian, I was a new Christian at the time, and I said, you know, the Lord took away my desire to drink. And I, I, I got to the point where I didn't get drunk. I just, you know, drank enough to get a, a feel good, right? Relax. That's what we call it. We say relaxing. It relaxes me. Whatever. Uh, but, um, but I told him, I said, well, I don't want to miss the rapture because of being intoxicated. And for some reason, he laughed at my ignorance. I mean, he, he really laughed like something. But, you know, think about it. Uh, if you believe that the Lord could come at any moment, live a life that's sober. You know, live a life that's expecting his return. In fact, he says in verse 8, we're, we're his next part of this, he says, you know, you and I are to be like soldiers prepared for battle. And this summer we had, the, you know, the spiritual armor with the kids. And he, he says something similar here that you would see in Ephesians. He says, but let us who are of the day be sober. Or since we belong to the day, you know, now that we're new, our new creation in Christ, be sober. And that means to be calm and collected in spirit, to be temperate, to be dispassionate, to be circumspect, free from the influence of intoxicants. And he says, put on the breastplate of faith and love. In other words, clothe yourself. Trust in God for salvation. And, and remember, it's based on his love for us. And again, it's, it's the whole thing. And then, of course, he says the helmet, uh, uh, the hope of salvation as a helmet. To protect your soul, which consists of that hope of salvation. So that, that helmet, you know, has always been something that you can uh, recognize that God has decided he's going to give you a sound mind. He's going to give you a solid footing and that you can know without a doubt that you're saved. That helmet of salvation. It's not uh, hope to say, well, I'm wondering if I'm actually saved. But it's the hope that actually that salvation can only give to us. Salvation is the only thing that gives us hope and we can have it for sure. Warren Wiersbe says this, he says, there's a difference, and we're talking about being ready, there's a difference between being ready to go to heaven and being ready to meet the Lord. Think about that. You know, you may say, well, I got my ticket punched. You know, I gave my life to the Lord at some point in my life. I came forward or whatever I've done. I may even have a certificate for it as having surrendered my life to Jesus. But it's one thing to be ready to go to heaven and another thing to be ready to meet the Lord. He says, anyone who has sincerely trusted Christ for salvation is ready to go to heaven. But Christ's sacrifice on the cross has taken care of that. So we know that. But to be ready to meet the Lord at the judgment seat of Christ is quite another matter, isn't it? Scripture indicates that some believers will not be happy to see Jesus Christ. Could you imagine that? In 1 John 2.28 he wrote, And now, little children, abide in him, 
that when he shall appear, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. Now we're talking about believers and we're talking about, of course, again, the judgment seat of Christ. So it should be sobering to us. We should want to be sober. And we want to be ready, not just to go to heaven, but to be ready to meet the Lord in the air. Finally, as we end today, we're going to talk about the, just just declare it again, that we are not appointed to God's wrath. And this is Paul's encouragement and reminder. We've seen it all through this letter. Uh, One section, if you look back at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, look at verse 10. He says, and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. We will not go through the wrath of God. And the reason, he says it very clearly in verse 9. For God did not appoint us to wrath. In other words, he has not destined us to go through wrath. What's wrath? It's the punishment or misery that the tribulation is going to bring to people. When you think about the bride of Christ and you know, Christ the bridegroom and the, the church the bride. Why in the world would he, you know, agree to, has married us, and there's going to be a wonderful wedding feast in heaven, okay? And why would he then say, but now I want you to go get, you know, pummeled by the tribulation? Why would he do that? I can't see that. And that's, the reason I say that is because there's people that think, oh yes, you're going to, if you're alive during that time, Christians are absolutely going to go through the tribulation. And I don't agree with that. Why would he do that to his bride? Why would anybody do that? Anyway. God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, a future deliverance from the wrath of God. This is what it means in the sense of not your salvation as becoming a Christian, but being delivered from his wrath. Who died for us and whatever we wake or sleep that we should live together with him. Of course, again, wake or sleep, meaning whether you're alive or whether you've gone and, you know, the Christian word for sleep, lay to rest is death. The Christian word for death is sleep. He says we should live together with him. So as believers, you and I, we, we, we're going to wrap this up, um, but for, for believers, don't be indifferent. Be careful of that. Don't be indifferent because your future is secure, because there's still work to be done today. There's still things that the Lord wants to do. And so we don't want to fall under that criticism that was recently, I uh, heard a guy level at the church saying, ah, the church is just, you know, I see so many Christians that are just sitting around uh, eating Chick-fil-A waiting for the rapture, is what he said. And I'm like, well, you know, he has got a, he's got a point. Are we just living a life for our own good and not caring about the world around us? But if you're not a believer and you're here today or you hear this message, don't be fooled because today seems calm. And you might say, well, yeah, I haven't seen a calm day in a long time. In fact, it's going to be a nice and tough weather here in a little bit. But the Bible is clear when it comes to the Lord's second coming. There is a storm coming. There was a great Bible teacher. His name was uh, Shiler English. 
And he once told a story of a Long Island man, not Bob, who ordered an extremely sensitive barometer from a respected company. <laughs> Sorry, Bob, I couldn't resist. I looked at you. That's what happened. <laughs> That's all it takes. So this man, this Long Island man, orders a barometer, a, sense, a very sensitive instrument, okay? And when the instrument arrived at his home, he was disappointed to discover that the indicating needle appeared to be stuck, pointing to the sector marked hurricane. After shaking the barometer vigorously several times, which is never a good idea with a sensitive mechanism, the new owner wrote a scathing letter to the store, and on the following morning, on his way to, the, to his office in New York, he mailed it back. That evening, he returned to Long Island to find out not only was the barometer missing, but his house as well. The needle had been pointed correctly. There was a hurricane. And that's the point. There is a storm coming, and so if you think you got it going, you, you're, you're living life on easy street, you got good health, your wallet's fat, right? Your life is wonderful. It doesn't change the fact that there's a storm coming. There's a hurricane coming. But for us believers, if you're a believer, in the final verse today, the coming day of the Lord should be a subject of encouragement and edification for believers. Not speculation and fear. So if you're living in fear or you're caught up in speculation and you're getting in all kinds of different debates, silly, crazy arguments about the end times, look, we should be encouraging one another with this information. He says, therefore, comfort each other and edify one another. And so having said all that, we're not, you know, running around with our hair on fire. The end is near. You know, we're not doing that. We're going to live in confidence. We trust the Lord. We live soberly, watchfully, and waiting for His coming. Amen? Amen. Well, Heavenly Father, we thank You for, uh, again, for our time together today. And, and we do know, Lord, that, uh, um, you know, our hearts have been... Uh, brought with concern. Our hearts and minds are still have it has a concern over uh, Larry and Miss Linda. And so we ask Lord God again that you would protect them. And Lord I just uh, I thank you for the comfort that we have. I pray that we would always seek to encourage one another with the information. It's so easy Lord as you know for us to keep our heads down and glued to our little flat screens and receiving information that's not often helpful to us. And so, Lord, I just pray you would speak to our hearts today, that you would comfort us, and that we would know without a shadow of a doubt that we are yours and that we will be with you for all of eternity. So we thank you, Lord, for today. We ask that you go before us. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Let's worship the Lord together, if you'd like. Stand.
precious blood of Jesus Christ Oh, come to the altar The Father's arms are open wide Forgiveness was bought with The precious blood of Jesus Christ Bear your cross as you wait for the crown Tell the world of the treasure you found The Lord bless you and keep you May his face shine upon you May he be gracious unto you and give you peace God bless Thank you for joining us today for Calvary Chapel Elizabeth City's online sermon series Join us next week as we continue through the Bible, book by book, verse by verse, line by line. God bless.